The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello and welcome to the Prep to Pro NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Ben Pfeiffer and as always I'm joined by my co-host Max Carlin. Max, how's it going today? I'm doing alright Ben, how are you? I'm doing alright and today for the first time in a while we have a guest. Um, our guest today is PD of PD Webb's uh, Breakdowns. His Patreon stuff is awesome. He's at Above the Break 3 on Twitter. PD, how's it going? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, no problem. So today we have quite a bit planned uh, to get through. So Max, why don't we get into it? I'd like to take a second to shout out the network that helps distribute our show, Armchair Media. Armchair is a collection of 50 plus podcasts, including ours, trying to localize the sports world a little bit more. We've we've been with them since March and have enjoyed growing our audience with theirs. Starting June 1st, Bet Online will serve as a title sponsor for Armchair as well as our show. This will open up the possibility to develop merchandise lines as well as potentially host live events once we re- once we return to a semblance of normalcy. In addition to Bet Online coming aboard, Armchair will now serve as the host network for the world's lar- largest skateboarding podcast, The Nine Club. Hosted by professional skaters Chris Roberts and Kelly Hart, The Nine Club talks every week with the biggest names in skating. They're on social media at The Nine Club. To see more, search Armchair Media wherever you get your pods. Also, check us out on Armchair's website, armchairmedianetwork.com, and their socials at Armchair Media. Armchair Media, those who can do, those who don't can't. Take a seat. Yeah, before the main discussion, which will be on um, like philosophical debates in the 2020 class, we're going to talk a little bit about the draft Twitter uh, mock draft that uh, raised a bit of um, ire in many fan bases. Um, and so I, I wanted to talk about some, some of the stuff I did as Boston, um, namely trading Marcus Smart and the 17th pick to Golden State for two and the 48th pick. Um, just to, I, I don't want to dwell on that because that's not really what we do on this podcast, but just sort of a recognition of, of the financial realities of the Celtics situation and, and al- aligning uh, a timeline with, with Jason Tatum. Um, but I wanted to talk about Killian Hayes' fit in Boston because, um, I mean, we've glowed about Killian and, I mean, talked, I think, in fair depth about his... Um, his shortcomings on this podcast as well, but I think his specific fit in Boston is exceptionally good and um, would certainly set him up to, to really achieve uh, a high end outcome, but even, I mean, on a lower end of the spectrum for him, I think would fit really, really well alongside Jason Tatum going forward. Um, And so a lot of, a lot of my thinking with, with Killian in Boston is um, certainly off ball defense where, I think in this class, you see Vassell, who, who's certainly playing around the nail, um, looks sort of instinctually similar to Jason Tatum. But 
Killian Hayes is probably second in that regard in this class, I think, where he really is quite instinctual, instinctual playing on that um, area of the floor, is able to shut down drives with digs and make plays. Uh, and I just think that's something you'd see really maximized in Boston. Um, and then the idea that that Brad Stevens has demonstrated a really uh, notable ability to scheme to enable like genuine positive abilities while covering for weaknesses. And so what I'm getting at there is sort of the, the Jason Tatum snake and seal. Uh, if you don't really know about that, I, I wrote about it uh, a while ago. Uh, there are tons of clips of it on my Twitter, but basically he'll run a pick and roll usually with Daniel Tice snake. And then Tice will, will seal the big man on his roll. So Jason has a largely uncontested finish and it sort of enables Jason to use the advanced dribble moves that he has in a, in a space situation while making it so he doesn't have to finish through contact because he can't play through contact at all. Um, so it's that sort of, um, tailoring your your offense to uh the specific strengths and weaknesses of a player that i think would fit um killian hayes very well because he's such a dynamic player going to his left uh but really cannot play on the right side of the floor um and just that that i think that the celtics are a team where i'm i'm confident they can straighten out guys who are non-broken shooters as well they've done it with every high pick that they've had from smart to brown to tatum um, they, and they've done it with, I mean, all of these late career bigs too. Um, so I just think that you're, you're talking about a guy who would fit incredibly well. Um, he would be complimented by, or he would compliment Jason Tatum perfectly in that he is this guy who is, who's playing on the ball and is, is more than a caretaker. I mean, he is a, I think a dynamic playmaker, but he's not going to have that, that late clock creation. Uh, and Tatum will cover for that. You have that in place, whereas you know uh, the normal team picking in the uh, we'll we'll say late lottery for Hayes might not have that in place. Um, so I think it's just a really optimal situation for him. I think it's it's um it's probably one of the best situations that he could land in, if not the best. And uh, I mean, if I were the Celtics, Killian Hayes would be would be the number one player on my board because I just think in terms of um you know what what he offers complimenting Tatum and Boston's ability to to use what he has and cover what he doesn't have I think is um you know it's a it's a very compelling idea yeah absolutely I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense uh PD you have anything on that or yeah I think that you've got two separate issues the first one being that Boston fans are never gonna be in love with you for trading smart that's just a reality (laughs) And the second one is that if you do have the number two pick, why not draft Lamella Ball? Mm-hmm. And I think that the most important thing is that you a lot of the things that Lamella Ball would bring to a team are things that you kind of already have in Jason Tatum from a free exactly. point. And unless you're going to run the Harden Russ special where two players have an outside version of creation and make 90% of the decisions for your team, that's not a compatible fit with Tatum and Ball. Mm-hmm. And with the system that um, that Stevens likes to run, people often say, you know, uh, basketball is not math, it's chemistry. Um, and I would say it's a little bit more like baking. Um, you know, every team is sort of like a layer cake. There's distinct roles. And when you put it in, you hope that it works out nice and evenly with a distribution among your, you know, your, your top and your bottom. And on a bad team, you take it out and that cake is mush. And I think that there's a possibility for you know, the Nick screens, the step up uh, to flare stuff, 
not working for Ball because he needs the rock in his hands more than you would probably be comfortable with for an 18-year-old on a good team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I full, I fully agree with that. I mean, I, I thought about Ball when I sort of when I made the trade. I was thinking, okay, what if Killian does go one? Would I take Ant or Ball? And I kind of settled in on Ball just because I didn't, I don't, I don't want um. Two decision makers of the Anthony Edwards, uh, Jalen Brown level on one uh, team playing in, in fairly high usage roles, but also, I, I mean that really, if it came down to it, that would have been a pretty a pretty difficult uh, decision. Um, I, I I think also just with Boston, you're you're accounting for for a short term situation where I do think Killian can can. Um, help to some extent, whereas LaMelo ball would, would um, present a lot of issues. But I, I think that also the appeal with LaMelo is, is if you're a team that is very confident in your, in your strength and conditioning and really like overhauling his, his core strength and his balance um, you, you'd be confident in him. And I think that the Celtics development strengths lie elsewhere. Not that they're necessarily bad in that area, just they've demonstrated abilities that uh, to, to develop that I think are more aligned with, um, what you want to see from Killian. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think it, I'm definitely receptive to the idea that, that Lamella would be, would be an option for them, but uh, they're also, they're not going to get up high enough in, in any scenario, most likely to, to land Lamella ball, whereas Killian Hayes with the stock a bit lower um, seems a bit more realistic. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, and it seems like Lamella ball is going to, his optimal development situation is going to be in an ecosystem where he's allowed to take risks and run lots of high pick and rolls and command the ball. And yeah, like, like we're talking about Boston for, for Boston in the short term, long term, and in terms of balls development, it might not even be optimal to let him run as many high pick and rolls and push and transition as much as maybe he'd be allowed to on another team. So yeah, I definitely am in agreement that I think Killian works best with what they're looking for now and in the future. Yeah, should we uh, let's talk a little bit about the developmental picks that PD and I both made? So, um, I PD, you want to talk a little about Jaden McDaniels because we we I think talked about him last week and how he is someone who's obviously not uh popular in, in draft Twitter circles, but um, you you took him for Toronto 28th, and I was I was a little annoyed because I was I was planning on snagging him at 30 for the Celtics. Um, but you want to just talk about why you're kind of against the the going against the general draft Twitter trend and actually are, are in on Jaden? I think that I'm in on Jaden in a very specific environment. Um, the lens that I view development is one where you break down the component skills of development um, and then look at exactly how essential it is to their likelihood of producing value. And for Jaden, that is entirely based around feel. So if you're going to take a low feel player very high, you have to believe in your development system to get early value as a bad team and late value as a you know, mediocre to hopefully good team by the time that the player their second contract. However, in a situation like Toronto, who is an excellent team with an ex- excellent developmental tr- track record, you can take risks on guys that maybe at one point were considered you know, top five, top 10 talent, and slow play them to develop their feel in a, in a structured environment in the G League, and then in a even smaller dose with games. This is actually similar to how 
the Hornets have developed his brother, Jalen. Um, yeah, the 905 is clearly um, probably the best G League developmental system in the league. As we, I mean, we've seen them produce um, positive player after positive player for the Raptors. And look, you talked about, I think Jaden does make a lot of sense um, as an attacking off the catch kind of guy. And that's what he'd be in Toronto. I mean, Toronto is not a team that would ask him to to have any serious creation or really have to be in situations that are taxing on his mental ability, on his decision-making. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. That's a smart team that I think could definitely get the most out of, out of Jaden. So. Yeah, I mean, the concept of field development in general is is kind of interesting. I mean, it's something that I've, I've definitely been resistant to, that it's, that it's all that possible at this stage. But, I mean, I, I take it you think that in a, in a good team infrastructure where you're then put in a position where you actually get to see time, so we're talking G League, I mean, you 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 really think it's it's something that could do? I mean, how much do you think? Just to like a, a reasonable baseline to be able to play on a good NBA team, or or I mean, to being a strength? Like, what what do you think about that, PD? I mean, I think that your vision on this may be clouded by the Jalen Brown experience, <laughs> um, because I mean, just zooming out a little bit, like the Jaden experience. At, at Washington wasn't all that different than the Jalen Brown Callier mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, you have a player who goes to a different situation than what we usually see with one and done top 10 yeah. prospects. They're given a role that is um, not particularly well suited um, on offense for Jaden. The defense was, you know, fantastic with the stocks numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to sort of parse as an evaluator exactly what's happening here. And, I don't find feel to be an inherent quality, something that people are born with or not. And I think that there are thresholds. So to take a player like Jaden and to put them in a, an exposure-based developmental system where you know they see a whole bunch of coverages, they have to adapt to a bunch of coverages with low stakes, and they're allowed to make mistakes, like I think that that's something that the Ball family specifically has used positively in development. And yeah. two out of three kids with fantastic feel mm-hmm. is uh, better than a lot of basketball families could hope for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's certainly true. I think that, I mean, it, but I think the matter of, of situation is kind of interesting because, I, I mean, I, I understand that you'd, you would need, you know, involved reps where you're, where you're able to make mistakes, and that's what the G League situation provides. But, I, I mean, how, how do you see the, the differentiation between doing that on a, on a Raptors G League team and doing it on, um, I don't know, some a bad NBA team, the the Suns or something like that. So what's the difference between Jaden McDaniels and Anthony Edwards, basically? Uh, yeah. Um, the difference is that you can pull out and you can talk to and you, as a front office, can coordinate a 28th pick much better than you could a first pick. Like, mm-hmm. you get thrown to the wolves as a second pick, and you just have to learn on the fly. That works really well for some players. Some players take uh, that amount of playing time, that kind of leash, and really, you know, uh, graft to it. Mm-hmm. But it just depends on the wiring of the player. And from, yeah. you know, the background that I've done on Jaden, and, you know, the this is my fourth year seeing him now, like, he seems like a person, and he seems like a, a player type who needs a little more structure 
to say, okay, this is a slot pick and roll. You're reading the tagger in the middle. If he steps forward after one dribble, the ball is going on a laser to the corner. If he steps back, drive into him and get fouled. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do that 10 times today. And then you're going to go up to the um, to the big club tonight, and you're going to do that twice. And let's just see how it works. And that kind of structure can help a lesser talent. And doing that, not lesser, doing, doing that with a less esteemed prospect would be sort of baby steps is just an easier process than all of the outside factors required doing it with a uh, top three pick where you can't slow play somebody because you have to sell tickets and you have to deliver something upon the promise and the investment that you've made. Sure. So in a hypothetical where you have a very, I I would say, mentally malleable top pick, um, do you think that it's more realistic or or just the the outside factors of we just took this guy in the top five, you know, we're not taking him off the court, like he's going to be a high usage guy. Do you think that precludes uh, a similar sort of field development with uh, a top pick in a hypothetical where they have a very like, not easy going approach, but a coachable approach. Yeah. I would say with the caveat that you get them young enough, like this is sort of uh, the idea behind if age limits don't matter, like how young would you take a player to get them into your system? Mm -hmm. And while this is a a broader philosophical approach, like this is essentially what we're talking about now, how Luka Doncic was raised was, you know, going, having one set of expectations with one club, having another set of expectations with another club, and then having a, a third set of expectations with, you know, the national team mm-hmm. and using those as different development theaters where you work on different skills at age 14, 15, 16, 17, so that when he's 18, he can come in and really produce at an NBA level because he's worked on so many different component skills and different venues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that probably covered the um... – the, the draft Twitter mock uh, segment of this. And it's kind of, I mean, obviously it kind of already segued into our, uh, our general topic for the episode, which is philosophical discussions for the 2020 class. Um, and so we've got, we've got two categories. Um, and the, the first is uh, you agree on the evaluation and projection of a prospect, but disagree on the value of it. So um uh, the example that we have first is is James Wiseman and regular season impact. So again, this is something we talked about last week. But um, I think that there are definitely some people that are are higher on Wiseman. But I, w- I would say that um, not necessarily consensus, but at least among among draft Twitter types, the the general understanding of of Wiseman is that. He is a guy who will probably be a pretty good regular season player. He will be limited in his uh, versatility of, of pick and roll coverages. He will be uh, limited uh, in his offensive role. Uh, playing him late in games will probably be difficult due to the uh, inability to get up high on the floor. Um, and he will be uh, probably a more muted playoff player Uh Due to you know this the same logic, um, so the 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 question is, I mean, how how valuable is a guy who can soak up a lot of minutes, uh, even at, at at a plus level, if um, you know that ends when you when you reach the highest leverage moments of of a game or a season, um, how, like how do you value that? Because I think to to one end of the extreme, where if someone's just 
trying to raise the floor of a team and doesn't necessarily care all that much about winning a championship, I could see you valuing that very highly if you if you think that it's a pretty solid chance that he is a a rather plus regular season player. But on on the other end of the spectrum, which I think is where a lot of draft Twitter winds up, uh, you could really really devalue that because you know what else are we are we building toward if it's not the uh, the playoffs? So I guess um, I mean open this up to uh, either. PD or Ben, if, if you guys want to want to talk about that at all. Ben, if you no, want to take crack this first. Yeah, I'll just say quickly, I think trade value matters here because players like Wiseman, um, players like regular season centers command trade value. I mean... Do they, though? Because, I mean, yeah, Andre, I, Andre Andre Drummond just got dumped for nothing. Yeah, well, I was thinking DeAndre Jordan, too. I mean... Well, I mean, that's less about him being... I mean, Jordan trade, at, his, at his peak might have... Yeah, might I mean, strong. I think... Like, I don't... I think it's... I think they matter to, to, to NBA teams, whether or not they're important in, like, a, a true value sense or not. I, I like, mean, and, like, has... Vooch has never really been that coveted either, right? I mean, I don't really know I mean, how teams have thought about Vooch, but, I mean, I think that Wiseman, like... When you draft Wiseman, there's some thought that maybe he doesn't like. Even if he's not able to impact at like a actual playoff caliber level, which I think is probably true. I mean, just I mean, even like straight apps by virtue of his inability to really do anything in the pick and roll outside of drop, and even his ability to drop. Um, I mean, it should be fine in time, but at the moment, it's not great. But I think, I mean, like I said, he, he's going to be a, a fine regular season player. And uh, depending on the situation he lands in, if he goes as high as he could, I mean, there's a pretty solid chance that he does go quite high. I mean, he's going to produce and he's going to put up numbers. So I do think he's going to command some sort of value there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just am generally skeptical of his value, like in the top 10 or the lottery. I mean, I think... Late lottery is probably fine, depending on your situation for him. Uh, yeah. I mean, Pete, Pete, you had noted in, in our outline, um, I think something that's, that's important about uh, like the, the mythical playoff center. So, I mean, does, does the attainability of a guy who can even play those, those leverage minutes, like how, how does, how does that play into this for you? The the idea that like this 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 center who actually plays these high leverage minutes is is not all that real in the first place. Yeah, I mean, if you can play, you know, Game Six, Eastern Conference Finals minutes, you're worth a max contract at center. Mm-hmm. Like that's just a reality, and most of those people are not centers at this point, or they're centers that are you know no brainer max contract guys. So. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a pretty large canyon between guys that you are willing to pay and will gladly produce value above high-level contracts, and then guys who um, will keep you either like in the playoff race or outside of the top five in the lottery based on competence. Um, and if you would draft a person like Wiseman and you admit, okay, I'm I'm getting him, you know, for games one through eighty-two, and then on games, you know, eighty-two to a hundred we have another guy like how exactly is a team supposed to handle that interaction like you just wiseman punches out on the clock and it's like okay well we don't really need you anymore um we appreciate your work um 
get get some good celebrations in. Like that's not a realistic situation. And no. Even worse. It, it's, no, yeah. it's not a realistic value allocation. If you don't believe James Wiseman is not a playoff, is, is can be played off the floor in a high leverage situation, you probably shouldn't take him in the lottery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I am am definitely more toward that end of the spectrum. But of course, this becomes a more interesting question when your aspirations aren't that high. When when you're a team who I don't know, like the the Kings haven't been in the playoffs in in what fifteen years. Um, they very well may be okay with a guy who can just uh, take steps toward bringing them even toward the first round. I mean, that's what you see a lot with, with Detroit and Drummond. It was a, a playoff star of team and they were very tied to a guy who was able to raise their floor a fair amount. I mean, not that high even, but sort of bring them toward just those, those two um, home playoff games. Um, I think there are teams that value that. I, and I think that that like in, in the context of the actual NBA where you're, a team that cares about a lot more than, than just winning a championship, because obviously teams care about a lot more than just winning championships. Then yeah. I mean, tank like dropping Wiseman way down to board makes sense. But um, when you're running a real NBA team, I mean, if you're like the Charlotte Hornets or something like that, like I think that there definitely is an argument for just landing a guy who is going to be pretty good and will, will push you toward playoff contention. I think that certainty is, like certainty of a guy who's going to be pretty good is very alluring to people who may or may not lose their jobs in two years. Mm -hmm. And um, the draft is always about risk tolerance. Um, I think the thing that sticks out with me for Wiseman is that I'm working on a piece right now uh, covering uh, the seven major ways that teams consistently run pick and roll coverage. Obviously there's more than seven. You can get into, you know, triangle switches and farther down the line and get 30, but I, you know, have other stuff to do. And something that stuck out with me with Wiseman is how low he ranks on the, on the versatility. Uh, Most teams don't run seven different pick and roll coverages in a game, but if you're a Wiseman team, you're generally a one One. style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're a one style, you have to believe that that style translates to the playoffs and in the playoffs where teams go small and your drop or ice, depending on how you value Wiseman's ability to put on weight, who is this drop big that you're getting that's going to take Wiseman's minutes and how exactly is that going to blend with your team construction and asset allocation going forward? Yeah. It's like, you're going to draft Wiseman. Like you almost want to commit to drafting like a Najee in the second. Cause like, like, I mean, PD is on the spot. Like what happens when a Wiseman team comes up against a Damian Lillard or a Steph Curry or someone who's going to hit pull-up threes every time they step to the line and Wiseman's not going to want to step up or be able to step up. I mean, that's, I mean, are you going to draft a big in the lottery and then be forced to play someone else you picked up off the street or drafted later to, for like a very specific situation. And so that leaves a lot of room for good offenses and smart coaches to, exploit one single pick and roll coverage because i mean i mean when they're like yeah but what i'm hearing is that any team that drafts wiseman should also draft xavier tillman senior exactly and i'm very here for this yeah i think that we should get packages going let's get package drafts going that's kind of like exactly what i was thinking that that i i mean i think naji is is another guy who because of different concerns probably will struggle to play um 
clutch minutes. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Wiseman would be so much more interesting if he was like the consensus ranked 19th guy, because at that point, like jerking around his minutes is a lot more viable. I mean, that's going back to the, to the Celtics. I mean, they're, they're a team that's definitely more willing to be uh, flexible with closing lineups. And I, it, theoretically it, it can work if you manage personalities, right? I guess that the, one of the main ideas was they were, they were going to do that during the 18, 19 season that obviously didn't work. Um, but I think Wiseman would be so much more appealing if he was like the 19th pick. And then you could also take Xavier Tillman at, at like 40 and for, you know, 80 games a year, Wiseman could play you know, 25 minutes and then he would understand his role is going to be scaled back to 10 to 15 or whatever in the playoffs. And, and Tillman's Tillman's minutes will increase a little and, and, you know, some like wing forward type will, will increase a, a little and, and he'll, he'll just be phased back a fair amount. And I, I think that probably is, is a lot less doable with uh, a top five pick. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I wish that he wasn't so highly regarded, which I mean, it's the same for, for, I mean, the next guy we're going to talk about in, in Halliburton. Um, um, before we segue off Wiseman, um, yeah, I, go ahead. we've only talked about defense. So I would like to quickly, <laughs> um, like you just noted the uh, political realities of benching a, uh, a person that you picked between one and 10, most likely uh, in the second half. I also wonder what exactly you are politically bargaining for um, on a team if you draft James Wiseman one through five offensively. Um, yeah. The idea that he is just going to rim run and be happy just rim running um, does not seem likely. And a team that drafts him one through 10 uh, is in danger of violating um, something that I've called the Sam Mitchell principle. I don't know if either of you saw the like the clips of Sam Mitchell talking to, I want to say that was the 2017 class at uh, Adidas Nations. Um, um, I don't think so. Just tell tell the uh, yeah. tell the story quickly. For, okay, so for so like the at Adidas Nations, which is usually for like the top fifty or hundred, mm-hmm. you know, the the elite of the elite of a particular high yeah. school class, they bring in MBA vets to sort of uh, explain how the world works. You know, when the when you shift from being a lauded prep to a pro, and uh, one of the kids, I can't remember exactly who. I have the screenshot saved on my computer. Um, takes a terrible shot and Sam Mitchell calls a timeout in the camp game, goes over to him and says, in two years, you're going to be playing with Russell Westbrook, with Chris Paul, with, um, uh, you know, with NBA stars. And if you take that fucking shot, I dare you to take that fucking shot. And the kids are like, Oh oh God, no. And that's the thing with being on a bad team is like, you kind of can't tell if you draft a player who takes bad shots early, it's very difficult to corral them into better shots because you don't have better players to be like, son, don't do that. Yeah. 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 I, I think that I was, I mean, it's, it's so difficult drawing conclusions from Wiseman's college sample because it was, it was so small and the competition level was, was so bad. And in high school, I mean, the, the shots that he took were horrific. Um, I do think that like he seemed to accept more of a reasonable role. Like there were still a few of the ridiculous turnarounds, um, but it was, it was a lot of, a lot of you know, rim running. It was a lot of, um, just like he'll get a seal and, and, a, and a duck in. And that I think is a, is a good usage of him as in, in, um, in the half court. Uh, and I think that I, I, I think he made some, some mechanical improvements on his jumper. I thought the, the set point was moved to a more reasonable location was a little bit less, uh, catapulty. Um, 
so I think that that he'll have some pick and pop utility, maybe to some some like spot up utility as well. But I mean, it's a it's a fair question, you know. Is again back to like Andre Drummond? Is he going to demand or, or Dwight Howard before him? Is he going to demand his post touches? Um, I think um, from from what I've heard, he seems to be a more like workable personality than that. But uh, I mean, you never know, and and certainly being a top five pick probably brings with it a sense of, I mean, fairly justified uh, entitlement. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very valuable question of, of what you're doing with a, with a big man who you take in the, in the top five. And it's certainly something that we talk about a lot with, with post bigs uh, in college, like, I mean, the Isaiah Stewart types and why they're such poor propositions in the NBA. Um, yeah. So I, th- I think it's a, I think it's a valid question. I think Wiseman, I worry about it maybe a little less than other people do, but I, I still think it's a very fair concern and will certainly depend upon the team that drafts him. And I don't want to make this seem like I'm dunking on, on James Wiseman, who like is a uh, pretty bright young kid um, who, you know, has great reviews on, on his work ethic and his personality. And, uh, shout out to anybody who can learn Mandarin. Um, they are a much better person than me. Uh, but you sort of run into this strange value equation where you have a guy who you want to rim run in a world where fives are shooting, but you also don't really want him to shoot because he's not a great on-ball decision maker. Yeah. And even Drummond, who was a better rebounder than Wiseman as a prospect and developed as a passer, still didn't net real value utility. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, Ben, unless you have anything to add, I think that... I think that's a lot on Wiseman. So I think we're ready to move on to Halliburton. So with Halliburton, the conflict is, well, I think most most of us would agree. I know you two would agree and most people would agree that Halliburton is not a primary initiator like he was allowed to be in college. I think that's evidently clear. And what he seems to be is this like linking player type archetype where he where he accrues value from being able to move the ball um, off the ball and hopefully shoot spot ups and attack advantages and then defensively be allowed to sort of roam and make plays. But given Halliburton's limitations or as just a prospect, you know, given his grave lack of strength, that's both debilitating defensively and offensively in regards to his ability to actually get to the rim and, translatably finish once he gets there how valuable is he going to be in that archetype and how valuable is that archetype just in general i mean people talk about him as lonzo ball light and we've seen lonzo um make strides in that sort of linking player archetype but how replicable is that and how unique of a situation does halliburton need to really thrive so either of you yeah, I mean, it's one. it's just it's a question of to me how how valuable that is in the first place the linking um, archetype. So I'm going to quote from from PD's breakdown of of Halliburton on his Patreon. And I mean, if you're not familiar, PD writes these sprawling, uh, very impressive breakdowns with um, very uh, esoteric um, pop culture references. Uh, and they're they're very fun, but but what he wrote about Halliburton is it's difficult to imagine uh, a team like say a mediocre version of the 2015 Hawks being successful keeping teams in rotation without T getting consistent paint touches. There has to be advantage creation to start a defensive breakdown. You can't one more around the horn for 24 seconds. And I feel like that is is just like the perfect you know couple sentence uh, takedown of Halliburton or or not even Halliburton of the the, the linking player in general. 
because it just is entirely context dependent because your entire existence relies upon someone else creating the advantage. Thank you for the very kind um, use of sprawling. Um, <laughs> I don't mean for them to be long. It's just I, my val my I like to know when I'm wrong. I like to know why I'm wrong, and mm -hmm. you know, I consider these to be time capsules. And I think Halliburton's are really interesting to be viewed as a time capsule because this is an archetype we're going to be seeing more and more because it works so well in theory next to jumbo initiators. And that's sort of the uh, rub for Halliburton is that if you don't have a extremely specific situation, which I would say is two heavy usage creators, one of which probably being an on-ball point guard um, and multiple large wings so that he can, uh, you know, gap and roam on defense, he probably is not going to help you and you're just training him to go on a good team after a second contract is done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the question is how many of those teams actually exist? I mean, if we're being generous, I mean, two, two, two creators, large on-ball wings, I mean, that... Those those situations are few and far between, and yeah, and in the lottery when you're picking it, that's yeah, exactly. When you're when you're picking in the lottery, there's just there's just about no team that really that really looks like they're going to be able to maximize Halliburton. I mean, I look at a team like New Orleans, who theoretically is close, but they already have their linking player yeah. <laughs> in Lonzo. And I think one thing that's clear about the linking archetype is you really cannot afford more than one of them, mm. especially no. given the flaws Halliburton has. Um, you will get a um, if there is a two on one with a defender in the corner, you know, going between a, a corner shooter and a slot shooter, like they will just pass the ball back and forth until time expires. That's <laughs> just the reality of this archetype. Like they're they're unselfish to a fault. And me and Max were talking about this uh, on Twitter. Uh, how many play or how many places are a good landing spot for Halliburton ever? Yeah, it, yeah. It, I mean the list the list is not long. Um, and it's it's pretty much exclusively very good teams, right? It's which like is the, why it's the, I mean, it's just he's he's a guy whose skills are so muted in a situation where where the surrounding context is not really good, and he's going to go high in the draft, so he's guaranteed to not to not land in a situation where the surrounding context is really good. Um, I, he's like he's an amplifying player. He's not he's not a, a creating player. He doesn't he's not like the genesis of anything positive. Uh, he just, um, you know, accelerates it. Um, and it's why we put such a, I think, such a premium on guys who can start those advantages. Like, I mean, it's why all three of us on this on this podcast right now are high on Leandro Bolmaro, for example, that he's a guy who can cons consistently create advantages. Um, and there's just, I mean, it's it's so hard to do that. And that's what needs to happen in the first place for a team to score. Um, I, yeah, I'm just very skeptical of, like, the value of just these minor actions on every on every possession that create a small amount of of possible uh, of positive value i am just a little skeptical that those actually accumulate into some massive impact player so even in a situation where halliburton say he ends up on um i don't know fully formed halliburton on the current celtics i think kind of makes sense because you've got your your on your high usage on ball guard you've got your your big wings um and I think that makes some some sort of sense, but even then, I mean, I, I'm skeptical that you're really adding that much value just by, say, accelerating or, or 
compounding already good things that have been done by other players. I, I just don't think that creates all that much value. Like it's, it's certainly something useful to have, but not with a top 10 pick. I mean, so Pete, I guess my, my question from that would be if you had the hypothetical perfect scenario for Halliburton, how much would you even uh, like, how high would you even take him? I think that the, any situation that Danny Green has been successful in, like not that they are entirely the same player. Like no player will ever be as good inexplicably at transition defense as Danny Green is. <laughs> Miles um, McBride. Miles McBride. <laughs> um, you guys just continually take all of the players I like, and I can never claim them publicly. Um, <laughs> but with Halliburton, like you could take him really high, and we haven't even gotten into like the actual issues with Halliburton. These are just the ideas of him. And yeah. Halliburton is like eerily reminiscent of a soccer player and the beauty of a soccer player like his archetype in soccer is that it connects 10 nine different outfield players into you know into a more seamless unit but in basketball where one player has much more impact that doesn't quite work the same like the, the value proposition isn't similar if I like got Kawhi back to the you know the Raptors and I had you know the sort of core that they had I'd probably trade up to get him top five I don't think I would have to trade up to get Halliburton top five, but I think that you could make an argument that it would get, you know, players who are great knockdown shooters more shots. And, you know, he can pretty easily slot into the, the Danny Green idea. He's not the same level of defender because of them with physical tools, but they have a great development staff. Every player would do better in Toronto. It's the new Spurs <laughs> in terms of like, if you have to say this player would do good in Toronto, you probably don't actually like that player. Yeah. So you're saying you don't actually like Jaden then? I love Jaden McDaniels. Jaden McDaniels is a, the clear outlier of this. <laughs> so I mean, and I think that it's it's sort of tangential to the this philosophical debate, but I think it is worth talking about the specific constraints with with Halliburton because of his just like complete lack of scoring threat. Because basically, all that he is is a. Um, a, a catch and shoot shooter um as a scorer like i mean he, he can work off movement and um i think it's something that, that you you got at in your breakdown that there at this point there's not really a lot of reason to question halliburton as a shooter um i don't know like like my only qualm would be that like it, it kind of can, it's it's slow and low and that creates issues definitely off the off the bounce um but like he, he definitely is is someone that you you buy as a shooter uh, but he has not even like he's not even a threat to score attacking a closeout really like he he has no scoring threat aside from as a catch shooter. No, he uh, he took sixty two at the rim finishes um, yeah. in a season. He is most at the rim finishes in any single game for a player who had the ball in their hands. I would say seventy percent of the game was five or was seven, and he took five <laughs> shots at the rim three times. Yeah. I mean, and, and we've talked rough. about this before uh, with the 18% free throw rate and, and granted other things come into play there, specifically uh, contact avoidance, but he also just isn't at the rim very often. Like he's not, he is not someone who gets into the interior and collapses the defense. He's, he is reliant upon people overreacting to him and treating him like he is the scoring threat that a normal uh, college on ball creator is when he's not. Um, and it's just, I, I don't, I don't see a way that he does much of 
anything besides uh, off the catch jumpers. And, and I mean, teams are going to be aware of that. Like teams, yeah. teams are not going to react to him the way that they did in college. And the only teams that really like I thought in, in the like 12 or 15 games that I watched of his that like treated him like in the NBA will were um, uh, West Virginia and to some degree, Iowa. And like West Virginia was just like, yeah, uh, get 30. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in the Baylor game, there was there was some of that too. I think where he, um, I mean, even even then, they they definitely did react to him like a scorer. But there were moments where where they were just playing pat, like they were playing all the passing options well, and you kind of see that he has an unwillingness to attempt to score and is looking for passes that aren't there, and it just results in bad decisions because he has nothing but bad options. Yeah, I mean, what happens when teams really decide to just play the pass and sprint to run him off the line? Because like you said, even if he does shoot, he's not going to attack closeouts. I mean, paralleling him to, to Lonzo Ball, who really can't do anything offense like creation outside of his really outlier catch and shoot in the development this season. I mean, Lonzo Ball shot 47% at the rim this year. And, like, that's pretty terrible. And I think Halliburton is probably like looking in a similar range if he's asked to do similar things and it's like questionable even how valuable that really is because if you have a player who can't do really anything in the intermediate or at the rim i mean it's going to be difficult ben i mean you you probably watched the most pelicans of anyone here did lonzo at least this year have off the dribble did he have the the step back um yeah i mean he, he can like there's at least one shot that he can consistently create for himself i mean consistent might be a stretch. I mean, there was a point in like, I think it was like January or December. I don't remember exactly where Lonzo really started to pick it up. And like once a game, he'd like once or twice a game, he'd hit like a, like a 16 footer off of a pick and roll and everyone would go nuts. And I think that's kind of indicative of of what it is. And I really still wouldn't call that consistent for Lonzo ball. Cause I mean, it's really not a weapon at this point, at, at least not one that I would be comfortable seeing him go to often. I mean, he shot like f- like 40% EFG, I think, around on off-dribble jumpers, which is like, f- for Lonzo, you you say, okay, that's improvement. But in, in general, for someone who you want to have something you can consistently rely on is not good enough. So. Yeah, and I think that it's important to note that like, Halliburton is way behind Lonzo in those regards. Like this is a guy who in college was a 31st percentile pick and roll scorer and a 36th percentile isolation scorer. Like he wasn't able to do these things in college. And I mean, that's not, a, not just like a, a numbers thing either. He, I mean, he has like no isolation creation equity, like zero whatsoever because I, it, like his handle is, is very poor. I mean, he, he has no like shake, no, no deception, no burst, no, like no strength whatsoever. Um, and it's just like com- completely devoid of uh, advantage creation or, I mean, even like tough shot making or anything really. It's just like, there's nothing there. Yeah. And in college, Lonzo shot in the 99th percentile off the dribble too. So, so that's, that's a thing there's to consider. Like, I mean, his free throw, I mean, his free throws are still, are still quite bad. And like, whether or not you believe in his, this, this overhaul sticking, um, I, do. I do believe that because yes. the Lakers literally never had a shooting coach and don't see why you need one. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I also would be in the believing camp, especially see what the Pelicans have done to to Brandon Ingram and to Lonzo Ball shot in one offseason. I'm yeah. also in the relative believer camp. But the question is, like, is Halliburton going to land in a situation where he has a Fred Benson? Probably not. Like, I mean, there's only so many teams with, yeah. like, really strong, sh- like, tracks of shooting development. I mean, we talk about how, like, the developing, like, spot-ups and stuff like that isn't, like, cr- it, 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 like it's difficult, but it's possible. But, like, I, I think, like, the ecosystem in which a player lands in for that is important and under talks about. Like I said, like if Halliburton, like Halliburton won't land finally for the Lakers, but he finds himself on, yeah, like like a team like LA that just doesn't have a shooting coach and doesn't care to. I mean, that's not a thing that he's going to be able to improve. So the Lonzo comparison to me uh, is, if we're looking at this connector archetype largely, Halliburton is less similar to Lonzo and more similar to Josh Giddy. Or it's good day, just because he's Australian. I don't really know. I've never heard it out loud. Um, in that, like, Lonzo got two feet in the paint. It wasn't great, um, but he got two feet in the paint. And Lonzo doesn't have a ton of shake, but, like, his handle had some arrhythmia to it. Like, people didn't always, like, predict it. Where, like, there was a lot of clips where there's a, a center just comfortably sitting down versus Halliburton. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, like, they don't look stressed, and these are not what I would consider – NBA movement centers and you know it's a hezzy cross and the guy's still there um the other Halliburton thing that I think Halliburton supporters don't make enough of is what exactly is he supposed to do versus aggressive drop coverage um NBA teams aren't gonna have you know six months without basketball and every single one of them is going to believe that they can do what Milwaukee does they're gonna have the guards fight over and they're all gonna have the the big sort of like stutter out at passing angles while staying strong at the rim. I couldn't imagine a coverage that would bother Tyrese Halliburton more than aggressive drop. And every NBA team is going to attempt to do it for most of his rookie season. I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of the Michigan game earlier when he took like multiple floaters from the elbow and like that's just not a thing that he can sustain. And then yeah, that's a good point. Like, that that basic coverage is gonna struggle against him. Yeah. Um one one final point for me before we move on, and of course you guys can chime in um after if we if you if you want before we move on to our next topic but um something that that pd mentioned earlier about a bad team taking him uh and just grooming him for his next team which will be a good team he does present an interesting second draft candidate and i mean it's it's obviously really early to be talking about this before he's even drafted but i mean if if he's in year three and the whole primary thing has kind of flamed out uh and a good team is like, yeah, we can get him and he'll be he'll be this connecting piece. I mean, I guess not like dissimilar from what we saw play out in Lonzo's career, uh, although he was obviously thrust into into that role in year two. Um, but I think in, in like, you know, the final year of his of his rookie contract or something like that, he, he could present a, a nice uh, like value play second draft type guy for for um, a good team that is actually suited to to. Um, you know, d- deploy him in, in his best possible role. I don't think that it's too early to consider a uh, second draft. I mean, I think that the difference between good teams and bad teams is that bad teams don't do research for second drafts because, like, they're the marks. So <laughs> good teams are trying to get as much research as possible to figure out who's going to flame out and what they can fix that bad teams can't. How many times have we seen the story that, like, 
Um, you know, if somebody had a physical problem, this happened with the Pelicans all the time. We're like, somebody had a physical problem. The Pelican staff, like, was a football training staff. And uh, they were using, like, uh, exercise videos from 1974. And then they went to a different team, and suddenly, like, the injury is healed. Uh, the player moves a thousand times better, and suddenly they can play all the game. Yeah. Like, is that not yeah. the story of what happened to Anthony Davis? Yeah, you're, you're, you're not wrong, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Ben, unless unless you have anything, we're gonna move on to to yeah. our next uh, topic. Nothing good. Okay, so the next category that we have is where you agree on the evaluation, um, disagree on the projection and the value of that player. And so the the guys that I have in mind for this are Patrick Williams and Killian Hayes, uh, talking about high leverage physical improvement beyond. Um, traditional elements that, that we consider to be uh, potential potential for growth like strength or I mean really just generally out, outside of the the physical realm I mean where people think that skill improvement is possible but athletic improvement is not um, and so in these cases like Pat I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Pat um, because PD just recently wrote uh, another of those sprawling pieces on um, on Patrick Williams uh, where I think that everyone would agree, that Patrick Williams has significant movement issues um, and that his hips are very slow, that he, he overturns, he's got slow feet. Um, he just, he can't really defend the perimeter. He can't move laterally. Um, just his movement in general is, is a pretty big problem at this moment. However, where I think my evaluation, certainly I think PD's as well, diverges from people who are a bit lower on Patrick Williams is a belief that that can be corrected to an extent that uh, that changes his projection and his value enough that we would take him much higher than those people. Um, and so I guess it, it's a bit of a, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a leading question, but uh, why, why are people willing to consider for Tyrese Halliburton, for LaMelo Ball, that you can develop them um, physically that you can add strength to, to them that, that will materially impact their projection. But for Patrick Williams, it's an unwillingness to consider uh, like rebalancing his leg muscles so that, that he can move better or with Killian Hayes, that he's on a ridiculously positive athletic growth development um, that like his change of direction keeps getting better, that he, that he seems to be getting even like m more flexible, less upright, like first year, like all of these things are art like unlike with with Halliburton for example like we actually see these things happening and um and people are unwilling to project that it'll happen I mean yeah I think there's some sort of like fallacy there and just no, that not being as common of a strength development arc we see I mean it's just like that like super skinny to eventually getting strong is something that like has like like happened and like been proven like time and time again and i think because of that people like see that like like it's kind of reductive in the way people see that as the only avenue of physical development but but i mean i certainly agree with both of you on patrick williams that his his leg thing is something that could be corrected just as much uh, as adding a lot of strength is i mean although like adding strength is like a more linear thing i think there's, there's an argument that it like like adding a whole body's worth of strength versus versus correcting a single kind of muscular balance or something like that 
I mean, I am no strength trainer, and I don't know, I don't know the specifics of that. But I think there's a case that that uh, well, generally people make like full body strength development uh, seem easier than it is, and maybe in favor of other things. But I guess my my question then would be. It's, this is more related to Killian, but did we not just see Luka Doncic undergo athletic improvements that were high leverage to the point that he went from being quite good, I mean, a, a, an all-time great prospect and quite a, quite a great rookie to an MVP candidate? Did we not, like, just see that? I mean, uh, PD, do you want do you want to – you, you haven't written about, about Killian yet, um, but, I mean, either either weigh in on, on the idea of, of Killian's athletic improvement or, or – Pat's, um, you know, body overhaul that you did, you did just write about. Um, yeah. So I think the, I think that Ben is absolutely correct about, um, people thinking that like going from skinny to being like a stable athlete is something that the general public is very comfortable with because that's the body type that basketball players generally are as teenagers. So they've seen it before and not everybody, you know, Everybody that follows Woj should follow Polar Fall, but they don't. <laughs> That's the because, greatest quote in the history of this podcast. Because, like, you can learn more about the things that are probably important in the draft from Polar than you can from, like, reading Woj saying what agents say he should say. Mm-hmm. And so, like, part of my Pat thing is, like, when you watch him for a long time, you see that he didn't used to be, like, so quad dominant in high school or in EYBL. Then he got to college and, uh, you know, I spent quite a bit of time researching their strength conditioning uh, uh, regimen. And it just seems like he put on, like he recruits muscle at a different rate than everybody else, especially in his legs. And he got too strong. Um, I think that people are uncomfortable seeing, like betting on things they may not either, like have enough of a confidence on or don't think that that's like uh, a discourse point. Um, that's not really something you're going to see talked about when you turn on draft coverage is someone breaking down like the way that a hip joint moves um, or uh, the way that the ankle absorbs force, even though it is as essential to what we do as how someone navigates a pick and roll coverage. Um, So I think that Pat is like, Pat's the most valuable archetype you could possibly imagine. And people who discount him in my eyes as like less than, a uh, a crazy valuable bet are disregarding a hundred dollar bill because it has some mud on it. <laughs> like, yes, there are problems with how Pat does things. There are like issues with his moving, but he was awesome as a prospect as a freshman. He has incredible background reports. He um, has made developments as a shooter. He has made developments in his reading of the floor. Um, he is an absolutely ludicrous athlete. <laughs> Like, at a certain point, these things have to add up to... And he plays the most valuable position in terms of lineup flexibility, in terms of the new NBA, and in terms of unlocking the things that you can do. Like, having a Pat Williams would make having a Tyrese Halliburton easier. It can unlock some of the lesser qualities within your other players. And if you aren't thinking in terms of, like, lineup chains or, um, you know, concomitant developments, then, like, Patrick Williams is somebody that you should really double back on. Um, as for Killian, um, so the first time I saw Killian was at Jordan Bryant Grand Classic uh, at Barclays in 2017, I want to say. So he was like a freshman in high school aged, and um, which like I would rather watch like young high school than the NCAA 
for prospects yeah. personally. Um, yeah. I know that there's a lot of people who feel the opposite, but like I like watching people in more free environments. It lets me understand what's them and what's programming. Um, and Killian was like the the stereotype of what a Euro point guard is. So he like you know, the program was like his dad's a pro. He's a, he was already bigger. He was already heady. There's like a mix of uh, European kids, um, uh, people from the NBA academies, and like one or two American kids. And he was like four inches bigger than the American point guards. He had negative burst. He couldn't get by yeah. anybody without like doing a better move or just like understanding the game better than them. And then the next time that I saw him, like really that that I paid attention um, was a FIBA game, and then like a couple games of Cholet, and the the growth from what he was in 2017, like I don't want to say it was Halliburton-esque because he was a freshman in high school, but like if you told me that he would develop into somebody who could consistently beat grown men off the bounce, I would be shocked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't see him that early, but I saw him at, at Cholet last year and then and then I've seen a, a lot of the Ulm stuff from this year. And... I think the big the big area of improvement is change of direction to the point where like by the end of this year, like twice a game, he would have a, a, like a pick and roll play where he would he would hit someone with a really sharp change of direction to like either reject a screen or like just change direction after he after he'd gone over the screen and and like really create space for himself. Um, to, to a point that like the the rapid rate of this athletic improvement that he's demonstrating is incredible I don't I don't understand it like I don't understand biomechanics enough to understand why Killian Hayes can now change direction um like that forcefully but he can and he keeps he keeps getting better in a way that um people traditionally seem to think is fixed with with athleticism and clearly it's not like this isn't this isn't some imaginary thing where you're you're saying you're, you're speculating that Killian Hayes could could improve athletically he's doing it like he's actually doing it at a ridiculously rapid rate and I don't know I, I think that at some point that has to you know level off and it, it won't it won't continue to at least the rate at which he's getting better won't continue to increase like this. But um, I mean, if, if he just, you know, sustains this sort of level of athletic growth for a little while, I mean, a, a lot of the concerns with him are alleviated. And, and I mean, granted he could, he still can only play on half the floor, but it, he becomes very dynamic on that half of the floor um, as this athletic improvement continues. And we and like a lot of other people talk about like fixability and development arc as important to skills like shooting when when those two things applied to something like athletic development, which is just as tangible, even though it's not talked about it, is arguably as important, if not more important. I mean, like you talked about with Killian, there's no reason like although is although the acceleration of his development, like you talked about, is incredible. There's no reason to think he just stops. And same with Patrick Williams, where if you will, if you believe like that, that the movement with I mean with the quad dominance and his ability to maybe rebalance his muscles is a fixable thing, like as fixable as teaching a spot up shot is. I mean that unlocks so much for for Patrick Williams in terms of lineup flexibility. Because I mean just being as young as he is with with the skills and the IQ that he's shown and his other athletic tools I mean that's like a really strong bet assuming that this one like important swing skill like we've talked about way early on this podcast when we talked about swing skills this is like a very fixable 
I mean, it, not saying that like not saying that this is a thing. This Patrick Williams um, movement is a thing that is guaranteed to be fixed or is going to be fixed, but it's certainly as fixable or close to fixable as things like, or probably more fixable as things like dribbling or improving feel. So it's something that I think is under talks about in terms of his development. Yeah. yeah and, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, PD. Okay. Um, so I think the the thing with Pat is that for people who you know have talked about the quad issue there are a lot of nba guys and specifically sort of guys with his body type who need a little more attention on their body composition like the two names that jump out to me are like lebron and boris Dio. like lebron has pretty openly talked about how his body just changes whenever he does anything he he of the i lost seven pounds during a game claim and then Dio, like if he stops working out his body just shifts and there are guys like that and like Diao wasn't that was one of the knocks on Diao. I know there's the, the other stuff about how much he actually liked basketball, but understanding him as like, hey, some guys just have this thing we have to give a little more attention to. If you are a if you are an organization that has a physio staff that they trust, I don't like having Patrick Williams very high should be the end point of your thinking. And then to how the answer of how do people not see Killian's improvement is that I don't think people have really seen a lot of Killian. Like, I think that um, I I might be making the block a little bit hot with this, but I think that there is a a general idea that people do not tell the truth about exactly how much tape they watch and how long they watch tape. Like, I'm trying to say this in the nicest general way possible, but like I'm saying this generally, like I'm a person who lurked on draft Twitter for like three years. And I was just like, these people know so much more than me. And it didn't really click for me to like actually participate until I realized exactly how much like embellishment there was on the amount of tape that people were watching. (laughs) And I think that if you think like, oh, Killian's, you know, this D'Angelo Russell type, like, no, Killian 18 months ago was a D'Angelo Russell type, slow twitch, uh, read based guy. He now is turned into a much different thing. And this is a person who also didn't like Ulm and Cholet and uh, and France's national team have good physio setups, but they're not P3 in America. Like they're not P3 in whatever yeah. team he's going to get drafted to. So you have to like the lessons of Giannis being when you put people into amazing situations from good, bad or awful situations, you can expect a dramatic improvement and projecting that onto Killian and to some degree mellow is important. And this is slightly tangential, um, but not really. I mean, even besides people maybe embellishing how much they actually watch tape, I mean, there seems to be some sort of movement in some sectors of draft Twitter that are kind of moving away from watching a lot of tape in terms of contextualizing and talking about value and things, which I think is important to do to contextualize. But like when you're not watching things like Killian's development over these years, you're going to miss things like that athletic development and development arc, which is something that Max and I have talked about in the past about why watching tape and especially watching tape over, over a single season or over multiple seasons is, is so important, especially with players like this t- to watch how they improve and watch how that point is salient to their future improvement. So, yeah. I mean, literally what we're doing is projecting development. Like it seems like the most obvious thing you could possibly do would be to understand development trajectory up to the point that you're at now like not doing that seems insane and it's it's certainly something that that i haven't been good enough about in the past 
but now just you know getting watching these guys earlier developing an idea of who they are earlier and seeing how i mean because because seeing how a guy changes over the course of one season is very important but seeing it over two three years is huge um and it, it's definitely influencing my thinking a lot this year um but i just yeah i think that getting that long that long um time frame view of of someone i mean of all of these guys but especially of killian changes changes your thoughts on him a lot uh and is is really essential um one more point on on him is is back to the idea of like conventional strength development um people project it with guys with crappy frames uh killian has a great frame he's very strong for an 18 year old um, like in the, in the BBL playing as, as an 18 year old, like he had moments where he was very physically overwhelming, uh, just because of strength and size at the point guard position. But I mean, going forward, this, this is still a like relatively skinny 18 year old. And he is a really good frame. Like he's going to bulk up. He's going to get to be, to a point where he is really physically overwhelming. Like he is going to be really strong, a six, five, point guard with a like six eight six nine wingspan like this is a guy who who's probably going to be a pretty overwhelming physical um guy <laughs> and that's why having him outside of the the like however you got however a person does you know tiers or um you know uh radars or whatever um development uh or evaluation apparatus that you use is so important to be longitudinal because if you just look at Killian or like even last year, look at like the way that late comers perceived Sekou versus people who had seen him for a number of times, like especially like you don't necessarily need to watch every single game that these prospects have played. And it's difficult to balance the, the breadth of, uh, of scouting and the depth of scouting. Like that's why scouting departments have so many people in them. But see, if you even if it's just one or two games for uh, of somebody over a number of years, you're going to have a much different uh, understanding of who they are as a player, what they've been in a, as a player, and what they could probably be as a player. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely uh, the case. Um, do you guys have any any final points, or do you want to get into our last philosophical debate? This has been in post-production. As I'm sure you've seen, this episode is going quite long. And the whole episode we recorded was almost two hours. And we've gotten some feedback, um, some people expressing their, their desire for shorter episodes. And we also think it's going to be better to shorten some of these massive parts. So this is part one of two parts on philosophical debates with PD Webb. So we're going to outro right now. You can make sure to follow the Prep to Pro Twitter account at Prep number two Pro Pod. Follow me at Ben underscore Pfeiffer underscore. Follow Max at Max A. Carlin. Again, you can follow PD at Above the Break Three on Twitter. He does awesome work on his Patriot his Patreon breakdowns. He's currently writing a lot of stuff about wings, um, and I know he has a piece about defense coming soon. Those are really, really awesome, sprawling in the best way possible. Super fun to read, and if you love this podcast, you will love those breakdowns because those are basically prep to pro pods in written form. So go check out PD, give him follows. He deserves far more than he has at the moment. So yeah, 
part two of this episode will be out on Wednesday, and that'll be around the same length as this one. So for now, um, everyone stay safe out there, have a good day, and we'll see you soon.